Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello, and welcome to another History Hack. This is our backup presenter, Josh Proven, talking to you with Alex Churchill. And today, Alex, we are joined by a returning guest, I believe. We are indeed. You're going to love him, because um, we do. He's back for a third time. It's Ryan McNutt, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Georgia Southern University and all that crap. You'll remember him because he came on and trashed Braveheart um, with Mel Gibson <laughs> and basically ripped it apart. Uh, and it was the best episode ever. Uh, but he also, as well, has been on before to talk about um, basically his day job, which is being director of the Camp Lawton Archaeological Project, which is a, a civil war prisoner of war camp. But we're going to talk more generally today about some bloke called Sherman Ryan. Hello, <laughs> how are you doing? Yes. Uh, pretty good. Um, better than I should be for 9 a.m., but good. I just, I love that the listener cannot see uh, that you have coffee in one hand and energy drinks in the other, which I'm totally there for. Yeah. Um, let's ease you in gently because there are a lot of British and European European people listening to this. Um, Sherman, he is the devil who came down to Georgia on his way to the sea um, and is, <laughs> and in his own words, made Georgia howl. Uh, to this day, Southerners have a slightly violent reaction to the mention of his name. Who is he and what is this myth around this march to the sea? Yeah. So um, Sherman um, had been in the war for, uh, since the beginning. Um, but at the point that we're kind of jumping into the story, um, Ulysses S. Grant, um, this is uh, 63, 64. Um, U.S. Grant has been promoted to lieutenant general commanding the United States Army. Um, Grant and Sherman served together in the West at Shiloh, at Vicksburg. Um, they were good personal friends. Um, they both respected each other's capabilities and, um, perspective on war. So when Grant went East, um, to take over the, um, United States Army, um, and to go after Lee, Sherman was given command of the military division of the Mississippi which was command of all Union troops in the Western theater and the responsibility for punching through an opening that had been made uh, with the fall of Chattanooga in November 1863 um, into the Deep South. Um, and the Deep South at this point is essentially Georgia. It is the beating heart of um, the Confederacy's war infrastructure. Almost all the supplies, both food, weapons, uh, clothing, and equipment that are being produced there are is is what's keeping Lee's army fed, clothed, and armed in the field. Um, so he has a fairly um, long campaign into November '64 um, after the fall of Atlanta. Um, that's when he decides that he can make this march to the sea. Um, from Atlanta to the seacoast, and then from the seacoast, uh, turn north, head through the Carolinas, and hook up with Grant in Virginia, and basically catch Lee in a pincher between his forces and Grant's forces. And as part of this um, march to the sea, um, this is probably one of the few things that I agree on with Shelby Foote, um, that Sherman is probably one of the most modern of the American Civil War generals. He understood that you're not going to win this war by defeating armies in the field. Armies in the field, you defeat them, they're just going to go back out, they're going to resupply, they're going to be um, uh, re-up in personnel, and they're going to come back out. Sherman's perspective was hard war. 
that if you want to win this war, you have to destroy not armies in the field, but the complete ability of the Confederacy to prosecute the war. And that is infrastructure, that is uh, supplies, uh, cotton that's bringing in money. And that was his goal on the march to the sea. So as a result, um, I can't remember exactly how many um, thousands and thousands of dollars worth into the millions of Confederate infrastructure, uh, but also private infrastructure, uh, cotton gins, meals, supplies, anybody that was considered to be supporting the Confederacy um, was considered a legitimate military target. Um, and this is where this kind of very visceral reaction to Sherman comes from. Um, and this is also where it starts to get tied up in this kind of mystery of Sherman's march, where every time you go through Georgia, you'll have people point out, like, well, um, those there's, in fact, a, a term uh, where they're called Sherman Sentinels, where it's these chimney stacks that are standing out in fields. Um, they'll say, well, that's where a house used to be, a, plante, a planter's house, um, a farmhouse, until Sherman came through and burned it. Um, so the mystery of Sherman's march is that he's basically a bulldozer that was coming through. Everything in his path got destroyed, wrecked and destroyed uh, private citizens, um, waged a war that was from the Confederate perspective, um, and they certainly wrote enough about it, was overly harsh, um, targeted civilians, targeted non-combatants, threw people out of their homes, um, destroyed miles and miles of essentially civilian-owned um, property. The problem with that is that a lot of this gets bound up with kind of lost calls ideology after the war. Um, it's kind of pointed to as the harshness um, and tyrannical nature of the Union invasion of the South. And there's very little actually, well, let me back up. Sherman absolutely destroyed stuff. Um, mm. He cut a swath of destruction, but he was also very clear in his general orders that it was targeted at people who supported and aided and abetted the Confederacy. Now, in some cases, this was would extend to kind of what we might consider egregiousness. Um, if his men were fired on by sharpshooters uh, from a house, he would destroy that house um, for aiding and abetting the enemy. Um, if there were bridges that were destroyed in his march and he could find the person who was responsible for destroying those bridges, civilian or not, that house would be burned. So there is this kind of gray area of asymmetric guerrilla warfare and then Sherman targeting the people that was responsible for that. But by the same token, there's also clear evidence of places that he came through, um, like Sandersville in Georgia, uh, where his... He lost several men to snipers um, that were in the courthouse and in houses in the town. And he initially planned to burn the whole town to the ground. Um, Sherman had a quick temper, but once he calmed down a little bit, um, he left alone uh, the houses of private residences in Sandersville. He posted guards, in fact, um, around quite a lot of the ones that were only occupied by women and children to stop them from being destroyed and looted. Um, they did loot and destroy the uh, stores, um, grocery stores, uh, greengrocers, and if I remember correctly, I think they also pulled down the courthouse because some of the snipers were in the tower of the courthouse. So there's this balance, um, and this kind of balanced, nuanced view gets lost in a lot of the mystery of Sherman, of everything being burned in his path, um, when in fact... Quite a lot of the planters' houses and plantations that are pointed to as being burned by Sherman actually didn't burn down until the 1900s because it turns out that heart pine, which is what most of them were built out of, um, which has large you know, resin pockets, um, doesn't really go well with poorly wired electricity. Yeah, you get a spark and the whole thing goes up. And quite a lot of the houses that in kind of local stories and local myth are pointed to as being destroyed by Sherman, there's newspaper accounts of them burning down in the 1900s. Yeah. But, you um, know, it, it, it's just so much better for tourism if you can say, see that house? That was mine. Sherman burnt that. <laughs> it <laughs> is. And um, even a bridge to the 20th century, isn't it? In, like, we're seeing precursors of World War One and World War Two, where the line between civilian and combatant just gets completely blurred. Um, but it's interesting that because he's the first, the reaction is still so visceral. 
Yeah, very visceral. Um, and the kind of latter um, discussion of Sherman um, also ignores the fact that, um, yeah, he had um, his bummers, as they were called, which were essentially the kind of people that you get in, in the army. Um, the kind of people that are shirkers, skaters, um, they're not necessarily ordered to, but they're kind of on the fringes and they are absolutely burning stuff and stealing stuff. Um, and in a few cases, I mean, there were, uh, punishment levied out for that. Um, most of the commanders of Sherman's Corps did have standing orders about, uh, prosecuting and, um, hanging. Men that were taking place in these, but you know, you've got thousands of men in an army trying to control them and trying to control people who just drop back and follow through, um, is nearly impossible. And on the flip side of that, in addition to Sherman's, um, targeted destruction, you also have the problem, the Confederate forces that are in Georgia at this point, which are mainly militia, um, Home Guard Reserves and Wheeler's Cavalry. Um, and Wheeler's Cavalry was held, uh, by even the governor of Georgia to be as bad as Sherman. Um, they actually tried to have him court-martialed for the predations of his cavalry on local Georgians that they were stealing everything that wasn't nailed down because they had no supply trains. They were living off the field too. So you have this mix of destruction of Sherman but also absolutely Confederate forces in the exact same area that are also destroying everything. And it's this kind of tit for tat, um, kind of he said, she said, or he said, he said narrative, uh, in historical documents. That's where the only way to kind of sort it out is archaeologically, um, to see those kind of destruction layers, uh, through archaeology and maybe even get an idea of who's actually responsible for doing what. Um, it's still um, not kind of a clear-cut smoking gun, but you can add kind of more nuance to that story with uh, the archaeology of looking at kind of waves of destruction that are coming back and forth and seeing what's actually been destroyed and what there's not a lot of evidence for. Excellent. Well, I'm very glad to hear that, and I'm very glad you mentioned a certain person earlier in your answer gentleman by the name of Shelby Foote, because that leads us quite nicely into one of the themes of this episode, which I think is going to be the battle between archaeology and Ken Burns' Civil War. For some (laughs) background, those of you who don't know, in 1990, a nine-part documentary series entitled Ken Burns' The Civil War aired on PBS. This, to borrow a publicity phrase, was a landmark television event in more ways than one, meeting cautious I say this very, I, I stress this cautious academic approval as light, as a light dose of entertaining history, but little more. The public, on the other hand, lulled by the gentle tones of Ian McCullough and folksy southern gentility of Shelby Foote, had beguiled by the strains of contemporary music this documentary influenced a generation. This in sum is the Ken Burns effect, which you yourself have uh, alluded to. Uh, it's reassuring, it's safe, it's moving, it's, it's credit, it's credible on the surface. The Ken Burns effect is more than the slow zoom on old photos to the plaintive strains of the Shokin farewell. So can you tell us how the Ken Burns effect has developed perceptions of the American Civil War? Absolutely. Um. He's like, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hold my monster. <laughs> it is. A good documentary in, in many ways, but in many ways, uh, with documentaries, um, and with some of the choices that are made, um, it's a documentary with, uh, problems. Um, and I'm not the first person to raise these issues. Um, there's a really good article by, um, Ella Starkman Hines, um, on the, I think, journal, the Civil War era, um, that kind of goes into some of these aspects and problems with the documentary. And one of the problems is that in the narrative that Burns has of disunion and strife and brother faces brother and catastrophe on the battlefield, he needs kind of an ending narrative point to that. And his ending narrative point to that is reunion, um, uh, agreement, um, reunification, um, 
bit, and that kind of echoes through that. Um, you get a lot of perspectives on the Civil War that paint as, as this kind of gentlemanly warfare, not quite the last good war, but it's definitely painted in uh, overtones for romanticism and gentility um, and honorable behavior. Um, and this kind of idea that like all the kind of horrors of war, which to be fair, he does touch on here and there um, at the very beginning, I think perhaps too briefly, which I'll probably end up coming back to, but it's overshadowed by the sense of gentility, um, people coming together at the end of it. And that washes out um, quite a lot of the reality of the civil war, a lot of the reality of the hard war of the civil war. And a lot of that problem is to be frank, Shelby foot. Um, he's, um, you know, an author, he's not a trained historian. Um, he has, I mean, his work is impressive. Um, it's impressive storytelling. It's tainted, I would say, by the fact that most of Shelby Foote's history kind of follows a lost cause ideology, um, with this kind of, um, approach that the war was really about states' rights when at its core, it was about states' rights to own slaves. Um, and it's problematic in the documentary, and this affects the whole thing, that I think somebody ran the numbers and something like 73% of the uh, spoken kind of talking head content is Shelby Foote. Um, so you're getting a frame of a war that is very romantic, uh, very much lost calls. And then you kind of have it tied up in neat ribbon at the end of it. That's like, you know, at the end, they came together. Um, it ends with Appomattox. And I would also say part of the problem from a historical standpoint um, is not necessarily factual, but it's the overwhelming focus on the Eastern theater for the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shiloh's in there briefly. Vicksburg is in there. Um, I rewatched um, the bit about Sherman's March to the Sea. Yesterday, in fact, and it is very much a lost calls mystery of Sherman's March to the Sea. Um, it's, you know, he, there's very kind of select quotes about the waves of destruction, but most of those quotes are, um, from relatively well off, uh, women who would have been the wives of planters who, of course, would have experienced most of the predations from Sherman's forces because they are directly supporting the Confederacy. And that was part of Sherman's target. Um, it talks about things like the destruction of Atlanta um, and rather fails to note that a lot of the destruction and the burning of Atlanta happened when the Confederacy pulled out. Because one of the things that they do, did was burn all the arsenals and the train loads full of ammunition and artillery ammunition sitting on the tracks when they pulled out, which you burn several dozen carloads full of black powder and rounds and cannon shot, and it's going to have an impact on the surrounding city. There's a reason when they did it for Gone with the Wind, they literally had to burn down an entire filming lot that they were done with, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. Go figure. I mean, the worst Civil War history in the world has covered that. Um, from a selfish point of view, I, I'm picking up on something you said a minute ago about the hard war and how we we miss out on it because of the Ken Burns effect. As a First World War historian, I think that this has possibly cost us for a long time um, the ability to make the link between the American Civil War as the first war with trenches, the first industrialised war, the first total war and make that link to the First World War and realise that actually the two, one follows on from the other. I don't think we realise that because of the Ken Burns effect and it's taken a while to overcome it. Do you agree coming at it from the other side? Absolutely. I mean, you get this kind of artificial break in history. Civil War kind of gets slotted in closer to Napoleonic conflict than the First World War. When if... You could argue that um, the Crimea was kind of the opening act um, in modern industrialized warfare, where you had kind of starting uh, aspects of railroads and telegraphs. The Civil War is that fully developed. You have uh, telegraphs. Um, you've got With one of my favorite correspondence things, which is, as well. Just reporting oh, yeah, the war and having to justify your wars and what's happening to your public as well. Yeah. 
Um, and when you actually look at the cost of the war, civil, the First World War is definitely higher. Um, I suspect, however, that's more of a size of increase in armies. Um, for example, at the Battle of Franklin in 1864, um, which directly occurs because um, they're trying to pull Sherman out of Georgia, in five hours at the Battle of Franklin, the Confederates lost more troops than U.S. forces did in 19 hours on D-Day. Yeah. But, I mean, similar calls. Cold Harbor, uh, 7,000 Union soldiers fell in 20 minutes. Um I think Gettysburg, the casualty rates for Gettysburg were something like uh 0.18% of the U.S. population at the time. The casualty rates for the first battle of the Somme were something like 0.14% roughly of the U.K. Yeah. population. Um, economically, I read something interesting, um, which was that by 1914, America's industrial output is matching blow for blow, not with major world powers, but Belgium. And that's because yeah. of decades of set being set back by the American Civil War. That's what it took out of America. Yeah. Um, the Both the war itself, um, casualties, and then also the after effects of the war, um, kind of the, the PTSD, um, and this kind of idea that run this thread that runs through of uh, uh Ken Burns Civil War of kind of a, a a gentlemanly war, the last kind of Napoleonic warfare is kind of blown through when you start reading personal accounts. Um one of my I shouldn't say favorite, one of the best examples I have um is at Chancellorsville. Um there was a Union soldier who watched a shell from a Confederate battery land in the ammunition in Kaishan stored behind a Union battery. He saw debris from the wagon and the remains of men and horses just filling the air. And then one of the gunners dropped from the sky right next to him. Um, he'd been blown skyward. The explosion had seared off all of his clothing and most of his flesh. Um, his eyes and ears were world are off. Um, you could see the bones in his fingers um, and a kneecap shining white out of the charcoal flesh. And then it spoke to this eyewitness and said, for the love of God, for the love of God, shoot me. Put me out of my misery. It's a mutilated human wreck, but it's alive and it's conscious. And this kind of goes directly against this kind of sense of gentlemanly warfare like this is this is industrialized warfare and you start reading through the accounts and it's it's filled with these kind of horrors um men in the front ranks um seeing not just their friend brother uh people that they grew up with who are in the same regiment being blown apart but in many cases being wounded by their friends blown apart because shells and bullets are exploding skulls and those skull fragments turn into shrapnel um, it is a horror. Um, Mike Adams, who wrote um, Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War, is a really good person to read on this. That kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, moves I, past this. Well, I think that, that this is very interesting because the reason you get the idea of gentlemanly warfare and this sort of Napoleonic sheen over the American Civil War is because at this, because by 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 the same token, People think the Napoleonic Wars were all about chivalry and, and, and like elegance and uniforms and things like that. And actually from 1812 onwards, you are not getting any of that. You are getting mass industrialized slaughter at Leipzig and onwards in towards Waterloo. What, you know, Waterloo was just literally two massive armies showing up and shooting each other to pieces. Um, it's horrific. Yeah. And the fact that it gets romanticized, people, you I mean, the, the United States officer corps helped this along because they all went into battle in 1861 thinking, ha ha, I'm going to be Napoleon. Um, and then of course it gets dirty. Uh, but that's what we get left with. And that's why you, I think you get, because nobody really understands that warfare has been getting increasingly mean. <laughs> yeah. For a very long time. And there's there's rose-tinted, um, after the Civil War, there is, by a host of veterans, um, this kind of interesting rose-tinted glasses look at their past. 
where they talk about us being kind of forged in fire. Um, and, you know, it was the days of their youth. Um, a lot of this is, I suspect, um, I don't have any evidence to back it up, but I suspect a lot of it, a lot of this is psychological attempts to move past, um, post-traumatic stress syndrome to try to justify, uh, what they went through and what the country went through. Um, Chamberlain, uh, who was a little round top at Gettysburg, um, was a wreck for years after the war, wounded, alcoholic, um, his relationships were crumbling. But he still wrote quite a lot of material, basically lionizing his experience in the war um, and talking about it as a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be some kind like, of internal. It's like therapy, right? It's got to be some sort of therapy. Yeah. yeah. Not that kind of doctor, but that's got to be <laughs> some kind of simplification of, of, of your experience. Mm-hmm. I think that feeds into this as well. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, which, I mean, leading us on then, what do we do about this mess? What do you do as an archaeologist? So... This is where we're going with it. Um, you're head of several archaeological projects that attempt to shed a stronger light on like the reality of the Civil War. So, you know, you can use actual physical evidence to prove um, that people have been going about this wrong. So what is the Devil Came Down to Georgia project? Um, so essentially um, what this is, is focused on uh, is looking at two uh skirmish sites uh, that are so, well, I say skirmish sites, battles. Um, they're the standard uh, conflict type that happened during uh, Sherman's advance to the sea. There's very few actual big battles um, that happened. Um, and the archaeological and historical research of these kind of conflict sites has focused, understandably so, on the kind of large-scale uh, conflict sites, uh, places like the Battle of Griswoldsville, uh, Fort McAllister, where Sherman took Savannah. Um, but these kind of ephemeral skirmish sites are really more indicative of kind of Sherman's hard war. They're almost, um, they're asymmetrical on the Confederate side. They're almost kind of guerrilla warfare. And all the kind of aspects of guerrilla warfare come out of that. So this project was focused on using uh, uh, LIDAR, um, light detection and ranging um, software, uh, not software, hardware, uh, mounted on uh, airplanes to basically do a full-scale uh, terrain reconstruction of the area uh, between these two battle sites and try to see if we could use that to pinpoint in detail these really ephemeral sites. And they're ephemeral both in the number of troops involved um, one of them, the Battle of Foxhead Creek, uh, was November 28th, 1864, between uh, Judson Kilpatrick and Joseph Weaver. And it probably had a few thousand men on both sides. Um, the other one at Lawton Station probably only had a few hundred men on each side. So the big question is, can we find these archaeologically? Can we investigate them? Uh, what can we tell? Um, how much survives, what does it tell us about the actual daily conflict, uh, both between soldiers and troops on both sides um, and civilians who, these are, you know, inhabited landscapes that these guys are fighting through. Um, they're turning civilian, non-combatant farms, churches, villages into raging battlegrounds. And what's the kind of impact of that on civilians, the kind of after effect of these conflicts washing over them? 
Yeah, uh, uh, that's something I've often said, actually, is that you, know, you, you, you walk out of your door, your priorities are, I'm going to get to my car, I'm going to go across the street to the shop. If you're in a war situation, that all changes. The forest over there isn't pretty. It could be hiding a division of enemy troops. Those buildings over there could have snipers in them. You know, the landscape changes, war changes this stuff. So that's great that you can shed light on that with archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think we've done some uh, at the Battle of Buckhead Creek. Um, we had some pretty good results where um, we've definitely found um, the side of the creek where the Union Army uh, pulled off and stopped. And this is kind of one of the other corrections, this kind of idea of cavalry charges um, and back and forth kind of gentlemanly warfare is by 1864, the cavalry on both sides are functioning Something more like, well, to a certain extent, um, like, mounted, mounted infantry. Yeah, mounted infantry, um, and something close to what we think of, of as airborne cavalry in the Vietnam War. Like they're moving rapidly, um, and they're not doing charges. They're, we, Kilpatrick's troops, as they're drawing, uh, from trying to pull Wheeler towards Augusta to guide, uh, guard Sherman's march. They're fighting behind barricades. They're moving, stopping. They're leapfrogging uh, division behind division. And they get to um, a place called Buckhead Creek. They cross the bridge, burn the bridge. Um, that's in historical documents. There are mentions of artillery fire. Um, and we found pretty clear evidence where in this kind of horrific warfare, there were at least uh, two artillery emplacements. They're probably from the 10th, 10th uh, Wisconsin, uh, not 10th Wisconsin. They're probably from the 10th Ohio um, Cavalry, and they've set up two um, light horse-mounted artillery pieces, um, probably 12-pounder mountain howitzers, and we have dozens of friction primers where they are just unloading canister shot across the bridge they've set on fire in the Confederate forces that are oncoming across it. Um, and it is incredibly short range for canister. Um, it would have undoubtedly been horrific. And in addition to that, the archaeological work done has also showed that we've probably got, um, firing positions, um, set up along the edge of the creek bank, creek bank. So you have artillery, you have a skirmish line. Um, and by all accounts, that jives um, with the historical accounts where Wheeler was kept off for hours just by less than a regiment, um, probably actually only about two companies from a regiment. But the fire is so intense that they saw him for several hours, which lets Kilpatrick pull back, set up another stronger barricade position. And then we can also track Wheeler's movement against that um, because we have several uh Cushion caps, which how uh, weapons during that period fired. You've moved on from a flintlock firing uh, system to a percussion cap that has fulminant of mercury that drops on to um, a nipple on the gun. The hammer drops on that, fires a powder charge in the barrel. There's no casings like you would in the modern, get in a modern warfare, but we can trace those soldier positions uh, from those percussion caps. And we have several percussion caps that have the exact same tool marks, which means they are fired by the exact same weapon. And there is a definite movement of what are probably picket positions um, facing towards the northwest side of the creek where it bends up and it slows down. There's a big wide pool uh, that the church that was at the site seemed to have used for a baptismal uh, pool. And it seems as though there's almost certainly this is where Weeder is crossing the creek um, above the bridge to try to flank uh, the Union troopers that are stationed there. And it's limited evidence. Uh, we're only out there for about five weeks. Um, but I'm pretty sure we can see a movement uh, from the west to the east that's pushing these skirmishers back towards the artillery positions and back towards the road that leads um, northwestwards towards uh, Louisville, Georgia, which is, sorry, Louisville, Georgia, which is where <laughs> the main uh, from Sherman are. So we can tell quite a lot um, about these kind of aspects. Um, we can also see at 
Walton Station, even though they're, which is um, about a mile and a half to the east as a crow flies, it's set up um, as essentially what happens is December 1st or 2nd, um, Sherman's main forces are coming through, and there is one account from a Captain Dobbs, who is a commander of the 9th Alabama Cavalry, a Confederate regiment, and he is desperately trying to reach his commander, Wheeler. He has no idea where he is. Wheeler's basically dropped his regiment off, which by this point is only about company size in strength. And Dobbs has instructions that, and this goes back to kind of Sherman uh, mystery, Dobbs has instructions to burn bridges and all infrastructure um, and do anything possible to delay Sherman's advance. So he is burning bridges at Buckhead Creek Church, he says that he gets pushed back by heavy fire. He falls back to this uh, station on the Augusta uh, Millen Rail Line called Lawton Station. Says he comes under heavy fire, and then he's left that um, to go off into a rendezvous point uh, further to the east to hopefully try to meet up with Wheeler, but he has no idea where he is. So you get from this kind of one desperate message, which is the only count of this skirmish, Complete loss of command and control, complete loss of where troops are. He sent companies out to burn other bridges. They haven't come back yet. He's assuming they've been captured or killed. He's not even really sure where he's supposed to go, but he's coming increasingly under heavy fire. And we found evidence of this archaeologically at the old roadbed that leads to the station where there is clearly um, a pursuing force of Union troops and in this case, um, these Union cavalry troops um, are probably using, well, we know they're using Spencer repeating rifles, um, which in contrast to the kind of percussion cap fired rifles, these use rimfire ammunition. Um, they have a tube in the barrel that holds seven rounds. They are lever uh, falling uh, block rifles. So every time you crank a lever on the bottom, it loads a new round of the chamber. They're cased. You pull the trigger. You could fire, I think the best rate of fire was seven rounds in 10 seconds during some of the testing. These Union troopers also are using um, 32 caliber and 22 caliber um, pistols, uh, pocket pistols um, that are using case ammunition. Um, again, a lot easier to load on a horse where you just have to crack open um, the barrel and drop rounds in the chamber and close it. You're not trying to drop black powder and a ball down and then ram it down and then put percussion caps on, you load and fire. On the Confederate side, we have a pretty clear indication of how desperate this is um, because the Confederate ammunition that we have coming in at the Union positions is buck and ball load, um, 32 caliber buckshot, probably fired with a .69 caliber ball, used in shotguns, smooth bores, um, we have some percussion caps, uh, top hat and pistol style that are showing that Confederates did have, you know, percussion fired, um, small arms as well. But then we also have one of my favorite finds, uh, which is a flintlock hammer that's popped off, um, in the battle that shows that somebody at that skirmish site, site on the Confederate side was probably using something like a, Smooth bore muzzle loader or a fouling piece that was still using a flintlock as the priming mechanism. So drastically different arms, um, and you can follow the kind of push of that conflict um, across Lawton Station. And again, this is this whole movement where all of this conflict is rolling back and forth through farms, houses. Lawton Station was fairly small, but it was the uh, train station that basically serviced the local community of Lawton. It had the post office. It had a um, uh, Southern Express, uh, basically UPS-type office in it where people could send packages. Like, it had a telegraph office. Like, this was your point of contact or any contact with the outside world. This was probably somewhat of a hub of local community that was just across the road from it. And you have essentially this raging combat going through a train station. Um, probably people in their houses across the road. Um, there was an academy for school kids um, that was there. And they are almost certainly eyewitnesses and 
hopefully experiencing this as they're hunkering down um, under the windows. But this is going on in people's front yards. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I really enjoy talking about the cavalry in the American Civil War because actually there's, there's, but we don't have time for this, so I'm not going to belabor the point, Alex. We, we, we could do another episode about the cavalry in the American Civil War, but that just because a lot of people think that because they basically act as mounted infantry, it's a degrading of what cavalry do. Actually, this is an incredibly intelligent use of a mounted arm. Yeah, tell that to Germany in 1914. They do not want to get off their horses. (laughs) They should. They should have learned. Oh, they should have got off their horses. Absolutely, they should have, yeah. Should absolutely because this is exactly how you do it in 1861. They were showing people how you modernize horse mm. warfare. They were doing it in South Africa as well. Um, but this is great. Yeah. France and Germany ain't interested. They're like, no, no, I'm not going off my horse. Um, I, <laughs> I said them. <laughs> I think we should just quickly mention if you go back and listen to episode 115 of History Hack, it's Ryan talking at length with about the Lawton archaeological project. But it just has a bit of relevance. I think we should include it in this discussion just briefly as well. Um, it's an American Civil War prisoner camp um, that you extensively dig on. It's like your day job is obsessing over this thing. Yeah. Um, Sherman burned it as he went through Georgia. Josh has promised not to sing um, the marching through Georgia thing. <laughs> which we will all be grateful for. Uh, but just explain to everybody what this project does. Yeah. Um, so what this, it ties in with a lot of kind of, um, there are similarly tons of myths about civil war camps. Um, one of the things that we're looking for is the experience of POWs, um, access to food, access to rations, um, how prisoners of war dealt with the shock of capture. Um, there's a lot of really, really good research that shows that, again, PTSD goes back well before the kind of shell shock uh, um, first um, treatment that you get in the First World War. And these are guys who are in this camp trying to deal with uh, being captured, the shame of being captured within the kind of ideal masculinity of the American Civil War during this period is, you know, you either die in battle or you escape. Capture is a shame. Capture is unmanly. So you have these guys inside this camp trying to reconcile that. So that's a lot of what the project is looking at is mental aspects of prisoner health and well-being, how they dealt with boredom and PTSD, issues of supply, um, issues of bureaucracy, uh, low rations, disease. Um, seven, let's see, the camp was open from September to November and there were over 10,000 POWs interred within it. And even though it was in a better position than Andersonville, they still had 700 guys that died of disease. Mm. Um, so that's tied into it. Um, it's also tied into it, um, because the Lawton station is the depot that prisoners were bought in, brought into to march to the camp. So they would have marched along the same road that the Ninth Alabama retreated on, um, and the Union followed them on. So it's all wrapped up in this uh, package of similar dates, similar contexts, um, similar aspects. Excellent, yeah. And you guys should check out that episode, American Civil War Prison Camps. Uh, very interesting to look into. Um, so... How do you take all of this evidence and present it in a way that reaches the kind of mass audience that Ken Burns had at his feet? Um, it's difficult to reach the same scale of, uh, of evidence. Um, one of the ways that we do it is Camp Lawton, both, both Camp Lawton uh, and the projects on both these battle sites were ran as uh, public archaeology projects. So we had um, the excavation are always open. People can come out and see what we do. People can follow us on social media. Um, I'm probably going to have to make a TikTok at some point, although I really don't Oh, who wants to be on TikTok unless they're 12? Really? Yeah. It's the the audience. So we're reaching out that way. Um, I do um, talks on kind of a regular basis um, to schools, libraries, heritage associations. Um, I given talks to the Sons of Confederate Veterans, um, which is a 
stakeholder organization um, that is interested in what goes on. So it's kind of trying to communicate that, you know, this is the evidence that we have for archaeology. This is not what Weeder said 20 years after the battle when he's trying to kind of rehab the fact that he was a Confederate and he's trying to go into um, rehabilitate his career and go back into kind of government yeah, service. We, we can we can uh, briefly say that he was quite successful in that and he actually commands troops in the Spanish American War. So yeah, he he may have an agenda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his um, leader's stuff is is interesting in that it almost always disagrees with any other narrative. Um, so it's a very interesting aspect of self-promotion and I think this is also one of the problems is a lot of the people that are writing memoirs after the war like Weaver are from the Confederate side. Uh, Kilpatrick doesn't survive to write his memoirs so we have no idea what um, he thought about this whole situation aside from his um, official reports to Sherman. Um, so we have this kind of one-sided aspect and one of the things that I tried to write home is like look this is the archaeological evidence. Um, this is not a case of somebody with an axe to grind after a war. This is not a case of somebody trying to get motivation. It's not free of um, historical bias, but it's a different perspective. A, a, um, a bullet has a hard time telling a lie. Yeah, yeah. It's a line of forensic evidence. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Doug Scott, actually, is that he describes historians as being um, detectives um, and archaeologists as being... Uh, crime scene investigators, where you have different lines of evidence that you have to then kind of meld and link together. Geekinly wants a TV show along these lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably makes someone a lot of money. Let's just wrap up then um, by asking you, was there really a devil in Georgia in 1864? And if so, is it who we think it was? I would argue that yes, there was, um, and no, it's not. Um, the devil in, in Georgia's war, as yeah. it always is, it's um, the same aspects of, despite the best um, and most ethical ideals on both sides, as Sherman said, war is hell. You know, you can't control everything. Uh, Sherman did his best to attack military targets. But then you have this whole backdrop of lawlessness of both uh, bummers from Sherman's armies, deserters, uh, Confederate troops that are living off the land. Um, there's repeated newspaper accounts, in fact, from um, newspapers in Augusta and Waynesboro that talk about rail stations being burned by Confederate troops. Um, are potentially Confederate troops are maybe deserters. They're not quite sure because nobody can really tell at this point. Um, and that was the devil in Georgia, is you have an entire civilian populace who, despite whatever their political beliefs were, are subjected to this conflict that went right across their land in a sudden strike, of, and a destructive strike. Um, despite Sherman's general orders focusing on military targets, his definition of military targets expanded to an extent to where, yeah, it devastated southern, southern infrastructure. Um for decades after the war, um, to a certain extent. Something that devastated it even more was the fact that it's really hard to maintain uh, your economic situation when your economic situation is formulated on the basis of slave labor. Mm -hmm. It creates certain problems for yeah. modernizing. But also makes yeah. us feel that sorry for the people losing money. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, an excellent example of this is Burke County, Georgia, which is where both conflicts occurred. Um, the enslaved African-American population in 1860 was 12,486, something about that. The white population was around about 3,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't add up, does it? It's not You can't just shift your economy without seismic changes moving away from slave labor ryan this is an absolutely amazing you can come back anytime to talk more about the american civil war or swag off mel gibson you're one of our favorites josh do you want to uh cough up ryan's um contacts for people all right i'll just go to the vault hang on a second <laughs> uh you can find ryan uh on facebook i believe at uh camp lawton uh, they have a page there, and also on Twitter, there's a at Camp Lawton GSU and his personal account Ryan K McNutt uh, on Twitter. 
go say hi, ask him questions about Braveheart and, and yeah, Mel Gibson. He loves Mel Gibson and... just like we do. <laughs> <laughs> no swords, no guilts, no nothing, people. I can't even watch Pocahontas because Mel Gibson is the voice of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, on, just an, on another note, um, in terms of some of the things that Ryan's mentioned today, PTSD in the American Civil War, we have a fantastic back episode somewhere that is all about opiate addiction in the aftermath of the American Civil War. We have a couple of brilliant episodes on women in the American Civil War, but we also as well, um, you mentioned that the likes of Shelby Foote and uh, Ken Burns have skewed us to the Eastern Theatre. We did a really good episode on the Western Theatre and the Mississippi in the American Civil War. So there's loads of content back there. And episode number 168 is Why Braveheart is Stupid, featuring Ryan in all his glory. For for context, if you're wondering why a Southern man is talking about Scottish history, it's because he trained at Glasgow University. There's also Holly Pinheiro's episode. Oh, we love him. Holly Pinheiro talking about uh, his their Pennsylvania, his, his African-American troops. Yeah. But yeah, he's basically been... Um, digging into pension records and has found just document after document relating to um, black people having actual agency in the Civil War as well, which was amazing. Um, and I I went to his book launch when I was in Greenville and ate all of the sandwiches and it was lovely. So Ryan, do promise us you will come back and talk to us again? Absolutely. Yep. Brilliant. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.